We're going to be looking at Matthew 27, verses 55 to 66 today, and I would welcome you to turn there in your Bible, and let's get into God's Word. We are in a series called, It All Comes Down to This. And uh, last week, Pastor Ron walked us through the passage that talks about the crucifixion of Jesus. It really is the epicenter of this entire portion of Scripture and the whole purpose why God sent Christ into this world, to pay for human sin with His own life on the cross. And so then I got looking at the next passage that uh, I get to preach, and it's not nearly as uh, significant or important, or so it would seem. But uh, you have a, a little paragraph about the women who were Jesus' friends, who were at the foot of the cross and watched him die. And then you have a, a, a few sentences about the burial account of this rich ruler named Joseph of Arimathea, who loaned Jesus his own tomb. And then you have Jesus' enemies who think he's a fake, and so they want to put a guard on his tomb to be sure that his body isn't stolen. But then as I thought about it, all three of these prove that Jesus is authentic, that he's God, and uh, the that his death paid for my sin and for your sin, the sin of the world. And this gave me an idea. I used my phone a friend and got a hold of Sean McDowell. Now, Sean is brilliant, and um, he, we've had him preach here sometimes at South Shores. And uh, in 1979, his dad wrote a book, uh, his dad, Josh, wrote the book, Evidence Demands a Verdict. And it recently has been uh, updated and uh, refreshed uh, by uh, Josh and by Sean and uh, republished in 2018. So I called him and uh, I texted Sean. I said, Sean, all these three groups, the women, uh, the burial team, the enemies, all of them seem to prove Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Is that true? And he said, well, yes. He says, look at the, uh, at the book, Evidence Demands a Verdict, the updated version. Go to chapter 10, which is on Christianity, hoax or history. It starts about page 232, and I'll send it to you. And, and so he did. And, and in fact, Sean is going to be interviewing author Lee Strobel on his YouTube this Tuesday at 4 o'clock. You may want to watch it. It's uh, Dr. Sean McDowell's YouTube and uh, talking about Jesus has risen from the dead. And uh, so uh, I have had the benefit of those materials this week and to show how they prove Jesus' resurrection. See, Jesus lived this amazing life, and he say, made some very bold claims about how he was going to suffer, how he would die, and how he would return from the dead. In Matthew 16, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, and then I'll rise again. In Matthew 17, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, and then I'll rise again. In Matthew 20, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, and then I'll rise again. While he was there in the temple in Jerusalem, he must have made a statement, which got quoted numerous times uh, at, at his uh, trial, that he, would he said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. So last week, we heard all about how Jesus died. Next week, we're going to hear all about how Jesus rose from the dead. And this week, in between those two, we are in the darkness before the dawn. We, uh, all we have is the man's word and our belief that Jesus was more than man. He was God come in human flesh and that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So his word is to be believed. It's to be acted on. It's to be lived out now. That's our challenge as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, that we're going to love Jesus now. We're going to live for Jesus now. We're going to let Jesus live through us now, even when it's out of style, 
even if we get laughed at, even if we get ridiculed or cut out of our friends groups because of it, Jesus made some promises and every one of his promises has or will come true. You can trust Jesus. He's always told the truth. And so he made this audacious claim. I'm going to die. I will rise again. Other people have made the same claim. There was a, a man named Harry Houdini. He became the greatest magician and escape artist of all times. He was born in 1874 in Hungary into a family of a rabbi. And uh, they were poor. They immigrated to America. And he began to do magic tricks for people and escape tricks. He became an escape artist. He could, he could be tied up with ropes, with chains, handcuffs, put in jail, straitjackets. It didn't matter. He could escape. He loved the mysterious. And he liked to do what seemed impossible. And he loved to push the boundaries. And he had decided he was going to figure out what was on the other side of death and come back and tell people. He said to people, I'm going to come back, not reincarnated as a baby. I will come back as the man I was the day I died. Well, he died on Halloween in 1926, and his wife waited for him for 10 years. Every year on his death day, they would hold a seance and wait for him to show up, but he never came because mere mortals do not have the power to bring life after death. Compare that to Jesus. He made the same claim. I'm going to die, but I will come back in three days. Now, ordinarily in the church calendar, today is called Palm Sunday. We have uh, the, the celebration when Jesus was on the Mount of Olives. A crowd gathered around him. They put branch, palm branches out in front of him. They, they yelled, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they celebrated that the king was coming to Jerusalem. The next Sunday was Easter Sunday. Jesus had already died, been buried, come back from the grave. Between those two, there are so many things that happen that uh, we actually have been preaching our way through Matthew. We preached about uh, uh, Palm Sunday in September. There have been 21 sermons since then from the book of Matthew. So many things that Jesus did in that last week of his life are packed into the scripture. So we picked this story up, Matthew 27, verse 55. And Jesus has just died this very excruciating, horrific death, dying on a Roman cross. It took him six hours to die. And Pastor Ron reviewed for us the statements Jesus made from the cross. Three of them are directed to God. Others are directed to people around him. And then a declaration of triumph. He said first, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He said to the thief on the next cross who asked to, to be remembered. He said, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. He saw his mother at the foot of the cross. He said, woman, behold your son. When the weight of sin was placed upon him, when God turned his back, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After a long time, he said, I thirst. Then right before the end, he made two statements. It is finished. It's accomplished. And then he said, Father, into your hands, I commend my soul. And then he died. But see, here's how God works. God had a plan. And his plan was for Jesus to come into the world and suffer and die so that your sin and mine could be atoned for. It could be forgiven. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. We were irreconciled. But God brought us back together through Jesus. And so it was God's plan for Jesus to suffer and to die. 
And Jesus willingly submitted his own will, his own wishes, his own life to the will of the Father. And he was willing to suffer and die and then be raised from the dead in three days. It was a miracle. I don't want it to be a spoiler alert. But God did a miracle. It was proof that Jesus was more than a mere immortal. He was God in human flesh. And God wants everyone to know you can trust Jesus with your life. That Jesus is God. That Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. That Jesus is alive forevermore. That his resurrection proves the power of God. And I'm getting ahead of myself. That's kind of next week. So we're going to save that for Easter. So, you know, usually at Easter, you get together with family, you get together with friends, you celebrate. And so next week, let's do that. I want you to invite all your family, all your friends, all your social contacts to come and join us at South Shores next week to celebrate Easter. We are celebrating Jesus Christ. He is risen from the dead. He is our Lord and Savior. So what else are you going to do? Sit at home, feel sorry for yourself? Sit at home in fear? Sit at home in boredom? Why not let's get together and celebrate this good news of Jesus? So Matthew 27, verse 55, been promising it. See, Jesus has died. And we're looking at these three little paragraphs. And they're basically about getting Jesus' body from the cross to the cemetery. Getting it from the cemetery into the tomb. And then Jesus' enemies saying, we got to post a guard because we think he's a fake and they're going to steal his body and then lie to us. But here's what really happened. God really has three teams of people that he has gotten involved with Jesus' body and burial. And they willingly and wittingly or unwittingly all become eyewitnesses to the greatest event in the history of the world, that God in Christ came back alive in this world. Together they proved the resurrection uh, that validated the power of God. So here, kind of the first team, the people who revered Jesus, they loved him. I'd call them the home team or they're the defense team. It's Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary of uh, the, mother, the mother of James and John. Her name is Salome. And then, of course, the, Jesus' own mother, Mary. Here's what Matthew told us. Verse 55, There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now besides Jesus' mother Mary, these women are named as witnesses to the death of Jesus on the cross. First, and, and all of these are listed in, in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so there's fragments that we can place to bring together to bring a composite picture. But Mary Magdalene was a woman, it tells us in Mark, that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. We don't know much about the rest of her story, but she began to follow Jesus and loved him all the rest of her, his life and her life and it seemed to have a special relationship. And then you have the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John. Mark calls her Salome in chapter 15 and in chapter 16. And she was at the cross. She was uh, uh, going early in the morning to anoint his uh, body at the tomb. Her husband was named Zebedee, and they had a fishing business in Galilee, and they even had hired servants, so they were quite well-to-do. And they had a family connection to the high priest, which is how John and Peter got into the courtyard on the night of the trial. 
The other woman is also named Mary. She's also called the other Mary. And she's told us, Matthew tells us, she has these sons, James and Joseph. Well, if you look at all four Gospels, at the who's at the foot of the cross and the women, and the list of women that helped Jesus' ministry, and the list of the disciples, they give us interesting facts. And here, I might be going out on a limb here, but I think this woman was actually married uh, to a man named um, Alpheus. Now, Alpheus is not a common name. Nobody in school with me was named Alpheus. And uh, Alpheus and Cleopas are the same name in different languages. You remember in Luke 24, Jesus is walking on the Emmaus Road and with two people, and one of them was named Cleopas. So I'm thinking that Cleopas or Alpheus have, uh, is married to this other Mary, and they have sons, James and Joseph. And James is one of the disciples. He's called James the Less. He's always near the end of the list. So he must have been a very average student. But they love Jesus. They're part of the home team, the A team. You've got mothers of the disciples and a woman that Jesus has cured from seven demons. And they, they pay for stuff out of their own pockets. They provide uh, food for the, everybody and the disciples and Jesus' team to eat. And they provide uh, for where they're going to stay. And they give extra TLC. And they're at the foot of the cross. And uh, they're putting their life at risk there because some irritated Roman soldier might take a swack at somebody. Uh, and they stood there in support of Jesus and his mother. And then three days later, they were there that fateful Sunday morning as they're walking to the tomb wondering, who will roll away the stone so that we can get in and anoint the body of Jesus? They were in love with Jesus. The point here for us is that God uses little insignificant people who love him. He loves to partner up with them in doing his work in this world. You know, people like you and me, are you on the home team with Jesus? I hope so. People who love Jesus and revere him. Well, if they were the defense, then the offense is the people who respected Jesus. And that starts at verse 57. They're kind of like the away team or the offense. In Matthew 27, it's verse 57, it says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. What a great description. Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus. Wouldn't you love it if that was said about you? Your name, a disciple of Jesus. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every time somebody mentioned you by name, I know him, he's a disciple of Jesus. I know her, she really loves the Lord with all her heart. And I hope to be that kind of person, known by our love for the Savior. Well, we know quite a bit about Joseph of Arimathea from the other Gospels. Mark tells us he was a respected member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. And Luke adds that he was a good and a righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking toward the kingdom of God. And John tells us he was a secret disciple because he feared the Jews and that his teammate in the burial was a man named Nicodemus. Well, you remember Nicodemus. He shows up in the book of John early in John chapter 3. He's a rabbi. He comes to Jesus at night. And he says, we know you must be from God because of the miracles you do. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus left scratching and goes, how can this be? 
He shows up again in John chapter 7. The, things have already heated up between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. They have wanted to kill him. And Nicodemus tries to be the voice of reason and step in and say in John 7 verse 50, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So they already had in their mind what they were going to do to Jesus, and it was causing tension in Nicodemus. The third and last time he shows up is right here at the foot of the cross after Jesus has died. In John 19, Nicodemus, you see, has moved from curious quizzer of the Savior to, let's be fair and friendly, Freddy, to a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Now you can be sure there was a price tag for Nicodemus and for Joseph of Arimathea to follow Jesus. They were part of the Sanhedrin, which the Sanhedrin was 70 ruling elders plus a chairman or um, a person in charge. So 71. It's the ruling body of the Jews. It was established by God and Moses way back when the law was given. And these people are strong, powerful, influential, wealthy, self-serving. They kind of acted like our Congress and Supreme Court all at the same time. They were comprised by two groups, the um, Pharisees that were more conservative and the Sadducees that were more liberal. The high priest was part of the Sadducees. So you can imagine, Joe and Nick are in this group and the tension that's happening inside of them as that group becomes more and more and more anti-Jesus. What do you think was going on in their minds? What do you think was happening to their friendships in the ruling body? Both Joe and Nick had begun their relationship with Jesus and their search for the Savior in secret, out of fear for the Jews. But their respect and love for Jesus kept growing and growing until eventually a choice had to be made. Are you going to be a friend of this world or are you going to be a friend of Jesus? And when you can't do both, which one are you going to do? That's a good question for us too. Are you going to be a friend of Jesus? Or a friend of the world when the chips are down. Look how God had uniquely prepared Joseph of Arimathea for the job he had Joseph to do. He was a man of significant means. He was wealthy and uh, Matthew describes him as a rich man. He was a man of significant influence. He actually was able to go to Pilate's office on the day that Jesus died on the cross and asked to be given the body of Jesus and it was granted him. Now, if you think that's some small thing to do, how long would it take you to get the attention of the president of our country and to get him to say yes to your request? Okay, how about our state governor? Do you think you could call him up and see him today and get your request granted? I doubt it. Joseph was a man of significant influence. He was a man of significant means. He was also a man of significant faith that he put into practice. And thanks to Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus was given a decent, respectful burial among rich people, which actually fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Ordinarily, after a crucifixion, which they only crucified people who were criminals or slaves, the body would be discarded disrespectfully. It would be thrown out with the trash into the Hinnom Valley where there was a continual fire burning that burned away the trash. And it would just be lost and um, thrown in with the rest of the refuse. But God used this rich man to provide his burial plot to establish that after Jesus died, he was buried in a particular place 
at a certain time. And then three days later, the tomb was empty. Now, I think Joseph of Arimathea mostly believed in Jesus. And I might be making this up. I might be way out to left field here. But here, here's what I'm thinking. You can read in John 19 how Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea went to bury Jesus in, in the Joseph's tomb. And they took along with them 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Now, myrrh and aloes were things that you'd put alongside the body because they smelled nice. They were very expensive. And uh, that way, as the body decayed, the uh, odor of death would be covered by the, the beautiful smell of the myrrh and the aloes. Ordinarily, a rich person was buried with 20 pounds of myrrh and aloes with them. They brought along 75 pounds. If you believe that Jesus had, was telling the truth, that when he died, he was going to come back from the grave three days later, wouldn't you bury him with about two pounds of myrrh? Why 75 pounds worth? So I think their faith still had some growing up to do. The same was true of the women who were from the home team. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there at the cross. They were there watching the burial, and they were there um, at the tomb early on Sunday morning going, who's going to roll away that big stone so that we can put some more uh, anointing on the body? They were shocked when they got there and found the stone rolled back. But Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. But I think their faith had some growing to do, and I think our faith has some growing to do too. Jesus says, I am with you always. Believe it. He says, do not fear. Believe it. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that you know that in this world you will have tribulation. You're going to have troubles. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And then he says, be my witnesses. See, let's review. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God uses those people in this world who love him to do his work. He uses those people who respect him to do his work. And also, and this is kind of amazing, God can and does use people who revile him to prove his point and to do his work. And that's the third team, the opposing team, the people who reviled him, Pilate, the priests, and the Pharisees. Verse 62, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how this imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So the chief priests were named Annas and Caiaphas. And they had perceived Jesus as a threat to their power. If Jesus ever did return after being dead for three days, which had never happened in the history of the world, but if it did, it would really upset their apple cart. And so they set a guard to be sure that the dead stayed dead. The Pharisees had perceived Jesus as a thief of their popularity because the people, instead of listening to them, had all gone to listen to Jesus. And so they've taken actions, fair and unfair, to silence his voice. And Pilate, well, Pilate really only cared about Pilate. He cared about Pilate more than he cared about the truth or more than justice. He, he just wanted the Jewish leaders to like him and to give a re good report about him to Caesar so that he could keep his job. He was concerned about his job security. So this is the opposing team. 
Pilate, the high priests, and the Pharisees. And they all wanted to prove Jesus a fake and a fraud and that he was dead and gone. It was over. It was done. But this shows God has a sense of humor because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And they wanted to prove Jesus a fake and a fraud. And God caused them to do just the opposite with all the precautions that they took. They are a key piece of the evidence that proves that Jesus is God, that Jesus really died and was buried, that he rose from the grave on the third day, that faith in Jesus is rock solid. He fulfills his promises. He does what he says he's going to do. And even if he's unpopular, even if it looks like Jesus is losing, stay on Jesus' team because he's going to win. Because three days later, the guarded grave was empty. Jesus rose from the dead. Oh, but that's next week's celebration. You better be sure to be with us next Sunday. God was using people as eyewitnesses to leave an accurate record of what God did that day. People who re revered him and loved him, people who respected him, and the people who reviled him. See, if Christ didn't return from the dead, then our whole faith is useless. Everything hangs on the resurrection. Will Jesus return alive? Those who reviled and hated him and called Jesus an imposter did everything they could to say, he's dead. They didn't believe him. He's dead. He's gone. Those who respected him buried him, but they buried him with four times uh, the amount of burial myrrh and aloes because they mostly believed and they wanted to keep it pleasant in any case. And those who revered and loved him were in total shock because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and Jesus didn't stay dead. And here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We don't honor the memory of a dead holy man. We reverence and worship the risen Savior. Jesus Christ. We love and trust God who has the power over life and death even in the darkest night. When it seems there's no hope, we have hope. Our proof is found in the recorded actions of those who loved him, who took his body off the cross, who placed it in the tomb, who were back there three days later and found the tomb empty of his body but talked to angels. They watched him die. They watched him come back alive. Our proof is found in those who hated Jesus and did everything they can could to break him and to snuff him out. They condemned an innocent man to die and to, on a cross. They buried him. They placed a guard around him. They secured the spot. But death couldn't hold him because God is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Do you know where Jesus wants us to put our focus today? Before he left, Jesus gathered his followers and he said, do this to remember me. This is my body, broken for you. This cup is my blood which is poured out on your behalf. All of you drink it. Do this to remember me. Now we're going to celebrate communion in our house churches today, in your home. I hope you gather with all those that are in your house and you find some bread and you find some juice 
and you remember Jesus, let me pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you that you died on the cross for our sin. And I thank you that the grave couldn't hold you. And those who revered you, those who respected you, and those who reviled you all had to face the same truth, that Jesus Christ from Nazareth is the Savior of the world, that death couldn't hold him. He came back alive. That you gave yourself your broken body and your blood as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And with your stripes, we are healed. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior. Amen. God bless you.